listening to the CD Baby. CD Baby. CD Baby DIY Musician Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 126 of the CD Baby DIY Musician Podcast. My name is Kevin Bruner, your host for the show, and joining me today is Dimitri Vitsa from StoryAmp and Rock Paper Scissors Publicity. It's been a while since we've had someone on the show to talk about publicity and press, so I'm excited to have Dimitri here. But before we get to my interview with Dimitri, I just want to remind you that we do have a listener line. That number is 360-524-2209. And uh, we've been getting some great calls that we're looking forward to using in upcoming episodes. So if you've got a question or comment and want to call in and leave it there, um, make it, uh, try to keep it brief within about, you know, one to two minutes and we'll do our best to get it on the podcast. Also, you can email us at podcast at cdbabypodcast.com. We've got some, like I said, some great, great uh, feedback and comments and questions coming in and some interesting perspectives about uh, the Pandora issue that we've been uh, talking about and planning on doing a special Pandora episode in the near future. So if you want to weigh in on that, you can do so there. Well, with that being said, let's get to my interview with Dimitri. Joining me in the office today is Dimitri Vitsa of StoryAmp and Rock, Paper, Scissors Publicity. Dimitri, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? It's great to have you in the office. It's great to be here in Portland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we do so many interviews over the phone and Skype, and you know, it's a different vibe having you sitting right across from me. So, um, Before we get into our discussion about music publicity and all that, why don't you tell us about uh, who you are and what you've been doing? All right. Well, um, I've been doing music PR for about 14 years. I uh, started in the music industry actually in Portland, Oregon, working for a record distributor called Allegro here and um, did that for a couple of years, helped them set up a music PR department and realized I really wanted to focus on global music. So that's when I started Rock, Paper, Scissors as a PR firm that specialized in uh, global music. So we've worked with everyone from Cesaria Evera and Tanarawen and Balkan Beatbox and Antibalas and just lots of different types of music from all over the world, helping them get on NPR and in the New York Times and all that kind of stuff. And uh, actually live in Bloomington, Indiana now, uh, where Rock, Paper, Scissors is based and just in Portland for a little bit just to soak up the sun and the rain. <laughs> <laughs> You're here for the sunny season. So. Exactly, that's right. <laughs> Have a have a little uh, change of scenery, and then more recently, I started StoryAmp, which is a web platform for connecting journalists with music, so artists can add their um, tour information and their releases, and have it automatically get sent out to relevant journalists uh, while the tour is happening or as the release is on its way. So, um, we actually released a, an ebook with you guys um, about how to write a pitch. Um, meaning what you're going to send to the press to get them excited. So we've we've got some things we've done together with CD Baby, and um, but we haven't had this conversation yet. No, <laughs> no, we, we haven't, and it's about time. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it seems like since we've talked to, to it's been a, probably three, four years maybe since we've had some uh, publicist on the podcast, and I'm sure a lot has changed in the press since then. And... Uh, you know, just it seems like a lot of the media outlets have gone online. Things like the Huffington Post have become massive, and you know, just a, a shift in possibly how they do business. I don't know. It just Absolutely. looking from an outsider, that's what it seems like. But you know, the thing an artist is always struggling with, 
in my mind is trying to figure out what exactly the press is looking for. I mean, what, what stories sell to the press? Right. No, you're right about it changing. It's changed a ton. Um, and what they're looking for has changed a little bit, although there's, I think there's some core principles that still help get people excited about something. And ultimately, I think of the press as storytellers. They're looking for a story to tell to their audience. Depending on how um, numbers-driven an outlet is, they might be trying to get eyeballs or readers mm -hmm. or listeners or viewers or so, so forth. But um, ultimately, it's it's whatever's going to engage their potential audience and their existing audience that they're looking for. So, um, I think you know that's the first thing. Uh, obviously, the very first thing for a musician is to think about the quality of what they're doing, what they're producing, their mm -hmm. songwriting, the quality of their recordings, their productions, their videos, their packaging. All of that stuff goes into the possibilities of getting coverage, um, and. A, an important piece of that and how you represent yourself to the public, to the fan base, as well as to the press, which is really just sort of a, an amplifier to your fan base, mm -hmm. is what story you're going to tell, how you're going to how you're going to engage people with the, the context of your music, mm -hmm. um, because a lot of times people are going to hear words about you before they actually hear your music. Yeah. Yep. You're right. You're right. And we that's something we talk about on the podcast quite a bit about an artist actually knowing what their story is, um, because without that, it, you know, you're missing out on a lot. Well, and there's so much music out there that you really have to, just like a, like a, like a business or a product, uh, although I know some artists don't like to hear it, to be able to differentiate yourself. What makes you stand out? What makes you unique? And if you say, well, it's just because my voice is good, or it's just because of these melodies that I've written, a lot of people say that kind of thing. It's like, oh, you should check it out. It's great. Well, you hear that enough times, and it's sort of like, you know, it, it's meaningless. It's mm -hmm. just it's just white. It's more white noise is what it is. And so you really have to actually engage an audience or a potential journalist or editor in a story in a way that they're going to be interested. What's and I, and I know that can be frustrating for musicians sometimes to feel like they they have to come up with not only do I have to write the songs, not only do I have to record <laughs> the songs or make the video, but now I also have to tell it has to have an engaging story. But I mean, if you think that way early enough in your process and think about developing a narrative or developing experience for a fan that should work as well for the for the for journalists too and some music and some artists uh a pr storytelling type approach is going to work better than for others um but at least if you just have that thought it doesn't cost anything extra to have mm -hmm. that thought while you're in the songwriting process while you're in the production process um, as well as in the marketing and PR process, it's it's part of it can be part of the art. Yes, you know it's the, part of the art is is how you engage audiences and how you tell stories. So you said that the press is looking for a story to tell, and so my question is, how do you match up your story or identify the storylines that the press are looking for? And I look at this at, se at several different levels. There's the you know the local press whether it be the weeklies, the, you know, the free weeklies that most towns have, or even just the, the more localized newspaper. And then you know, there's obvious national press, but to me that's a whole different animal as well. But really, for the, the artists trying to just get some buzz in their town, how do you even figure out what the storylines are that is, are, are going to connect with the music journalists in your town? Well, you know, I think um, there's, there's a couple different filters to look at this through. Um, one is a real broad one, which is going to sound counterintuitive on a CD Baby podcast, which is the quickest and easiest way for most 
musicians, independent musicians to get press is to play on stage. Mm -hmm. um, I say that's counterintuitive because CD Baby's involved with helping people uh, sell and monetize their recordings, mm -hmm. not their tour dates. But tours are also a great way to sell recordings um, and to get fans and then over time to sell music to those fans as well. We cover all topics. <laughs> this isn't just a CD Baby ad advertisement here. So. Well, the, 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 point, the point is that um, playing on a legitimate stage is newsworthy. Mm -hmm. uh, releasing a record is not. And that's the crazy thing because so many... So many people are releasing records, and they're the, the types of filters that used to be in existence to help people distinguish which records are of significance for which audience are in f so much flux right now. With concerts, it's a little different. It, there's an assumption that if you've been put on stage, then there's a curator, there's a filter of some sort that has allowed you to mm -hmm. be on stage, and local press in each market are going to be more intrigued with the fact that you're playing on stage than with the fact that you released a record. So, I mean, what kind of stage would be newsworthy? Well, I mean, explain that a little bit more. True. An open mic stage is probably <laughs> not it. Uh, a self-produced concert that nobody knows about probably is not it. Um, a free outdoor festival that's very local, that's more about the food or the crafts is Probably not it, although you can give it a shot. But it's really, you know, it's the respected venues in your town that are going to make a difference. In fact, if you look through your local weekly paper or if you have a local online um, uh, website that covers local concerts pretty consistently, you can see which venues are getting coverage. And that's actually a good way to not only find places to play, but also to find places that have an impact. I mean, if, if they're getting, if they're the tastemaker venues, those are the great venues to go and play. And that increases your chance of, of press as well. So, so by coverage, you mean that uh, it's not just that that venue's taking out ads in the paper, but that the, the, right. the, the shows that happen at those events get covered and get the write-ups. Exactly. I mean, if you pick up a copy of the New York Times, you'll see certain venues that get listed, spotlighted, previewed, and reviewed more consistently than other venues. That's, that's a decision to be made, you know, about what types of stages you want to be seen on, the ones that are popular not only with the press but with the fan base, too. Some venues bring attract a fan base regardless of who's playing. I mean, obviously, it fluctuates from yeah, night to night, yeah. but, but they have a better chance of it as well. So that's, that's one of the filters I was talking about. Now, another one is you asked, how, how do you know which stories are going to resonate with the press? And the truth is you don't fully. You won't know until you pitch it. Um, however, there's a process you can go through with your music, with your repertoire, with your career to start to identify authentic, legitimate story ideas and angles. And that's sort of the process that I think you go through first is, I mean, I'm not saying that you should necessarily um, change the way you write songs, compose music, produce music, arrange music, and so forth to suit the press. But I, th I think most artists uh, have stories embedded in their life and their career and in their music, in their lyrics and so forth. They just may not have learned the process of culling them. So I think there's a process of crystallizing, um, identifying and crystallizing what those stories are and then telling them. So I suggest things like go through each song one by one and think about what's the most intriguing thing about each song. It could be something that you're doing musically. It could be a technique that you're using, something that's different, you're combining. Hybrids are always a great 
um, a great way to get to a story angle is like, wait, why did you combine those two sounds or those two instruments or that effect or, mm-hmm. or so forth? You know, and, and and sometimes it's what was your inspiration for it or what are you trying to articulate through it? Mm-hmm. So you can do that with each song. You can do it with your instrumentation, your arrangements. You can do it with your lyrics. You can do with it what was what was happening when you wrote the lyrics or composed the music. What are some of the band dynamics that occurred when you're putting the song together? Um, you know, it, it's kind of old and cliche to to talk about the studio experience tons and tons but if there was legitimately something that happened you know yeah. somebody's somebody's relative passed away or somebody had a baby or you know or some 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 unexpected stranger walked into the studio something anything that's unexpected is always a great source for for a potential story and how the artist reacted to that and integrated it into their story of their music c- creation um, so that's one one possibility is to go through each song and look at all those different things. If there's traditions that you're drawing on or that you're adapting or changing, those are really great opportunities for stories. Um, and then you can also do it for touring too, to think on each tour. Go If you've never kind of reviewed what are the experiences that happened on tour with fans, sometimes fan engagement stories are, can be really intriguing. Sometimes you, you, know, you end up in some sort of friendship with a fan that changes how you create music. Um, or wrote a song for, or about, or you know, all those kinds of things are, are pretty cool. But sometimes it's also interaction with band members. Um, so there's, you know, those are those are some of the, some of the approaches that you can do too. But really to like cull through and not just think about like the literal interpretation of each song, but also the context and the story around <coughs> each one as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting with uh, my local regular newspaper. I I live across the river from Portland in Vancouver, Washington, and we actually have you know a separate newspaper from the Oregonian, which is in Portland. Um, and noticing the stories that they cover of local artists, it's always it, on the one hand, it's interesting to me because a, a lot of times it has nothing to do with like what you're saying. It wasn't hey, so and so released an album, and there you go. There's the story. It's usually a pretty big feature, but it's also some tied into something, whether it's like this person's a teacher by day, but at night they do this kind of thing, or uh, at night they're this amazing guitar player that's won all these awards, but you would never know from their day job kind of thing, or uh, storylines like that, which on the one hand I think have been great, but on the other hand, trying to figure out what's going to work, like how to pitch a story to them, I, I... found myself a bit confused because I've tried to submit stories and even just, you know, uh, various, you know, show features and such to them and haven't ever made any progress with that particular paper. With some of the other local, uh, like, weekly papers, had we've had lots of success, but it was just that one case where it seemed like this is probably the kind of paper that a lot of people have in most of their cities, you know, smaller town, 250,000 people, and just that's not doing all the writing themselves, pulling articles from various places, and just trying to figure out what's going to connect with folks like that. It is more challenging now um, when you have uh, newspaper staff shrinking and they're doing less local coverage or less original writing where they're really drawing on a newswire or something like that. Or they're following suit. Because they don't have as much time, they might be following suit from some other larger outlets or other tastemakers or indicators of what they should be covering. And so they'll do a quick review based on some, uh, someone else's interest. Yeah. But, um, but I mean, I think you're on the right track in terms of what the strategy is. Um, obviously, I mean, one of the interesting things about local papers is, and one of their unique selling points, and the reason they still exist is because they do connect with the local market. There is a local story. So mm-hmm. if you can... 
um, if you can think about what makes you special to the local geography, um, I think that could probably help with the, yeah. with the local paper as well. How do you how do you tell when like a story is no longer a story to them? Because the example uh, I have is that same paper. They did this giant feature on this artist for doing a Kickstarter campaign, a fan-funded campaign. And then we, uh, my band was doing one like uh, six months later. And I thought, well, it's no longer a story to these guys. They already did a big feature. And then literally a couple months later, they did another giant feature about, hey, look at this fan-funding thing. And it just blew my mind. I'm like... Dang it, if I had known that it wasn't a dead issue, I would have submitted it as a story. You know, I mean, the truth is there there, there are no hard, fast rules with a lot of, like, what is the best, always going to work kind of pitching technique. There's, it's more of an art than a science in a lot of ways. And, um, and sometimes you just have to try different things, you know. It could be that the... If if you saw one Kickstarter local band does a successful Kickstarter campaign and then you pitch them on yours a month later... It could be who was the editor in charge that day, or what kind of mood somebody was in, and then a month later you see another band do it successfully. It's they're they're really, I mean, it's really tough. the The main thing is to try things, to and to keep trying things, and to see what works and what doesn't work, and try the thing, keep doing the things that do work, but also be ahead of the curve and try things that nobody's done before, things like that. Um, but the trick with it is those those journalists and editors get targeted by tons of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been to offices of journalists where they have, um, you know, hundreds, not even that long ago, still hundreds of CDs, physical product on their desk, which isn't even the, the method that everybody uses now for receiving music. But, um, you, you know, they're, they're, they're pounded by so much stuff. The important thing to remember is that it's not always because they're not interested. It's just whether you caught them at the right time and so forth. So you never want to burn bridges. And so you have to be really diplomatic about how you're approaching the press. If you're going to pitch the press directly, yeah. that diplomacy, I mean, you can get you can get a little stronger in your language and, and how you interact, but you, you never want to do anything that's going to push a journalist over the edge to be like, I'm never taking your email. I'm never taking your call. Yeah. You're a jerk. Because yeah. they don't, I mean, they've got a hundred or a thousand other bands who are ready to, to pitch them on something. So. Yeah. Um, but I do think you just have to try stuff. Yeah. So uh, how, I mean, the vast majority of the of artists listening to this podcast don't have the funds to, uh, you know, hire a publicist, at least not on a regular basis. It, occasionally, I know, Artists will do it for like when they have an album release show coming up. But um, outside of that, most of it's going to be the artist trying to pitch themselves. So how do you put together a proper pitch for a story? I mean, how, so it's format so, or just so how the, the press wants to see it so they know that this is a real deal and not someone just spamming me. Well, I mean, I actually think that there's no, again, not a rule about that. I've seen a variety of formats, and, and different things work for different journalists, which is tricky to know if you're like going to go to a tour market in four weeks, and you're like, well, I don't know these people. I need to send them something. So, But I really don't think you need to get hung up so much on the format and more think, okay, just put yourself in the shoes of a journalist and think, okay, there's a band that's coming to town. I don't know who they are. What's going to get me excited about paying attention to them? Sometimes if you have a really good music video, it's simply that. And you have to just write a very short email. Check this out. I'm playing at this club at this time, this date. I would love your feedback on the video. What do you think? You know? And and it could be that. If you have a good video. If you have it, if you don't have a good video, don't use a video. If somebody says, Oh, you always have to send a video link, well, if your video sucks, <laughs> don't do it. Because it, it's it's not gonna help you, you know? 
Um, or you know, or it could be a it could be a, a track, a SoundCloud track, or a Bandcamp's track, or a, you know, a link to a CD Baby retail page, or whatever it is, um, as well. I mean, one of the biggest decisions that people that journalists are going to base, uh, you know, th- what they're going to base their decision on is do they like the music, mm-hmm. you know? It, um, and sometimes if they don't even have time to see if they like the music, it may have to do again with what club they're p- that you're playing at or, or who else you're playing with or, or something else or a recommendation from somebody mm-hmm. else. But I mean, I definitely think you should give people the quickest access to listen to your music as possible. That's usually the decision point. Um, so, uh, but you know, I think shorter, intriguing emails that leave more questions unanswered are actually better than full comprehensive thing for your initial pitch. Um, with a link to where you can get everything about the artist, the album, the concert. You want you want a journalist who picks up on something to be able to get everything they need to cover it if you can't answer the phone. Yeah. However, you don't necessarily want to overwhelm them with your flashing neon pink email flash <laughs> website thingy. You know, you really a text mess a, t- a text email is perfectly <laughs> is perfectly fine. Although if you're sexy, you should probably put a photo in too. <laughs> I get that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know. I was thinking you should put your shirt back on. <laughs> uh, but it's so warm in here. Uh, um, I, you know, honestly, that's one of the things where I know artists are just screwing it up right and left. But I, I mean, people pitch me stuff here at CD Baby, and I'm like, I don't even know why they're pitching me on this. I don't have anything to do with that. But it's just like they'll tell their life story in an email and it'll be pages and pages of text and then really not even sure what they're wanting me to do at the end of it. Right. I don't know. You have a podcast. Maybe you could play yeah, some music. Yeah. yeah. So Maybe with the right life story, you would change the entire format of your podcast and that play person. some music. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, th- I know that a lot of artists, that's their tendency. They get really excited about what they're doing, kind of think everyone on, on the planet knows what they're up to and just sort of just get online and just excitedly write something and hit send and don't really take into account what the person on the other end is supposed to do with that information. Right, or what their experience is. I mean, is there like subject lines or or ways, etiquette that people, I mean, I know keeping it simple is good and the minimum information that person needs to cover. You know, it it really, it really varies from journalist to journalist. One journalist will tell you, always put the artist's name, the date and the venue in the subject line so I know what it is before I open it. But, Sometimes you can say something else or even ask a question in your subject line. One of my favorite tricks is always to make all lowercase in the subject line because then it looks like I've hand typed it. Um, so n- not make it like, uh, you know, the capital letter of each word. Really? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that <laughs> trick, Dimitri. <laughs> Again, every, it, it, it'll vary each time. You know, the, I, I, I switch things up at different times as well. But, um, but you know, so, so I think... I mean, as the other, I guess the other tip to throw into this mix is as personalized as possible for that particular person, that particular recipient. The more it looks like a form letter, the more it gets ignored as well. Um, if you can actually read up on what a journalist has written about, um, engage them in a conversation about something they're interested in, then it's a whole different type of relationship that you have with a journalist. And if you're in a local market where you're going to be pitching the press pretty consistently, um, you know, doing things like going out to shows and meeting the journalists or telling them about an artist that you like just because you like them, not because you're in the band mm-hmm. or because they're a friend of yours, but literally just 
developing a relationship with a journalist around the fact that you have interesting taste or good taste is an amazing way to develop a relationship with a journalist and to find out what their other interests are. It turns out, you know, I know a journalist at the Wall Street Journal who's really into cheese. You know, like he's a cheese connoisseur. So there's a whole <laughs> different kind of conversation <laughs> there as well. Um, or, you know, you, you learn people's own life stories and their own, you know, what their own families are like and, and so forth. And it's just like, you know, meeting someone on the street. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, you have a different kind of interaction with them if you're actually engaged in, in stuff they're interested in. So I, I think with the show type pitch, that one seems a little bit more straightforward to me. And it's like, okay... I'll send them a couple emails, and then if they're not going to cover the show, they're not going to cover the show. But if there's like a a story thread that kind of runs through your career and you think, man, this is a great story, I think that's the one where it's a little bit harder to communicate because, one, it's hard for sometimes people to write about themselves and say, hey, you know what, this is a great story, what I'm doing, or at least in a way that sounds authentic without right. sounding like too over the top or really identifying the storyline. Like some of those ones that I've... I've seen in the local paper where they tie the artist's life somehow to the success they're seeing in music. Like, you know, this fireman, you know, he's working all day long, but did you know he's actually sold 100,000 copies of his new album and has this double life, you know, of uh, this amazing independent artist? And those kind of things, it's like, how do you... I, those seems like the harder pitch to me. I don't. I don't know yeah, why I'll, it seems I'll give so you some, hard to me. I'll give you some example. I mean, the thing that's kind of crazy is that with rock paper scissors, um, this is my global music PR firm. With global music, there's always lots of intriguing things that you can pull on, you know, because there's usually some relationship to traditions or hybridization of music or instruments or socioeconomic political situations around the world that you can always tie stuff into. So it's almost like cheating <laughs> in a sense whereas if you're quote just a rock band or exactly. you know, just a singer songwriter you might find it more challenging um but I'll, I'll give you an example of a couple of bands that i've uh interviewed recently to to develop press materials for there's a band called the dirty names um and they live in a um in a in a navy town sa sailing town in maryland and you know, on the surface, you might say, "Well, they're they're really they're really good. They do original music. Um, they sound kind of like a modern day Rolling Stones." Um, and then you know, you could talk about the love songs that they write, or you know, the kind of kind of uh, rock and roll songs. I mean, they're really rock bands and so forth. But I found out that they they were basically um, locked up in this basement type studio by this guy that's considered himself kind of a producer manager but he was all self-taught well the cool thing was he had this huge vinyl collection and he just just made them listen to tons and tons of old blues and and that sort of thing um but he also was a little bit nutty he would <laughs> when he was pissed at them and they weren't doing what they needed to do he would literally throw a hammer at them <laughs> so I mean, there's a story to tell right there yeah. you know that this dude basically locked him up in a basement and would throw hammers at them and while they listened to like these old gritty blues albums to really get the source of rock and roll or you know or the you know there's a story about the the neighbor who called the, who would call the cops on them because they were so loud and they built built a whole song around that where um, they basically told the story of how they they fictionally stole this neighbor's girlfriend, <laughs> and so there's you know this kind of stories about about that and, and that sort of thing. So that's one example. Another one is a, a band called the Gold Magnolias, who were um, a mix of kind of folk singer songwriter artists in Texas, Austin area, and they moved to New York, 
and they moved to um and you know they're playing a lot of the kinds of venues in New York where kind of folkier singer songwriter artists would play but you know it was it was just like a crowded marketplace and so forth well they they moved to the cheapest place they could find which was in Bedford Stuyvesant in Brooklyn which is traditionally known as a pretty rough neighborhood because of the the crime around the housing projects and that sort of thing and so there's stories around that in itself, these, these white guys from Texas who move into a primarily African-American um, rough neighborhood. But uh, they, as a result, they ended up playing at these almost entirely African-American and Caribbean clubs. And they felt like they needed to adapt their original music to the audience that was there. And so they went to, to more of a kind of a soul sound um, and, uh, and, and that sort of thing, just to keep the audience engaged with the, the gigs. It was, they were, they were kind of shocked that they got these gigs that they were getting paid with this like really cheap liquor and fried, <laughs> fried chicken, literally getting paid with fried chicken and cheap liquor. But I they, think, I think those are standard payment units for the independent <laughs> artists these days. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was a cross-cultural version of that. So, so anyway, you know, from there, the, the, the story kind of goes from there and, um, so that, that's the kind of thing that you can kind of dig a little bit deeper to get to something other than, yep, we showed up in New York and we tried to make it big, you know, which yeah. is sort of like boring. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it is interesting trying to draw on those storylines. I, I find that some artists, I think, kind of get scared when trying when straying into their personal life to look for those stories, not necessarily because, you know, it's it's going to expose who they are, but the idea that it kind of deflates them as this rock star type persona in the, in the media. But it's really those kind of things that people want to grasp onto in order to find some sort of common interest to write about people. Yeah, there's, if there's nothing to say, then there's nothing to say. Nobody's going to write about you if there's nothing to say. Yeah, you know? I know every band out there <laughs> thinks it's going to be the next Beatles, but <laughs> we all haven't figured that out yet. Right. We want something else to write I about. I mean, there is something to be yeah. said. There, there, there certainly are bands out there whose music is so compelling and connects so well so quickly with such a mass audience that the story doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But that is less often true. And if you are a developing artist who wants to take a proactive approach to developing beyond just your music to actually, t to, you know, to, to do marketing and get press, I think you have to think of that way. Think about that stuff. I mean, there's also artists whose music sucks, but people love to talk about it. And as a result, they sell music. Yeah. Oh, oh you know? yeah. We've, there's a few examples <laughs> that I could pull up that I won't talk about right now. <laughs> yes, we've seen that at CD Baby, that side of the spectrum as well. But hey, you know, whatever whatever works for you, it, it's working for you. You know, I'm reading a book um, that's, um, that's kind of interesting called Contagious. Uh, it's sort of a spinoff of a book called Made to Stick, which is a spinoff of The Tipping Point. Ah. And um, one of the things that he brings up... He, he has several reasons why ideas spread. I think that's the subtitle, is why ideas spread. Um, and one of them is, is he refers to as triggers. Mm -hmm. If there's something in the environment that, um, that makes people think of your music or your product in, in, in a broader case, then you can actually have your ideas spread more. And um, one of the examples that he brings is Rebecca, Rebecca Black's Black. Friday, that there were spikes in her video traffic on Fridays. Yes. Um, which is which is pretty <laughs> kind of an interesting thing to think about as well. Um, and she's an artist that I can say sold a lot, a lot of music. Yep. Regardless of what you think of that song, <laughs> she did quite well for herself. And even better on Fridays. <laughs> even better on Fridays. Well, that's the, the, the funny thing you mentioned, that 
I still see people on Twitter make mention of that song almost every Friday. Yeah. And it's like, how perfect, no matter what you think of the song, for an artist to come up with something unintentionally that every week she's, you're brought back up. That uh, reminds me of Manic Mondays. I wondered, I, I never thought about that, but that song might have done well because it was Mondays, and yeah. people do feel kind of manic on Mondays. <laughs> you, know? like, you, you wake up in the morning, you're like, you start singing that song. <laughs> the, the real question, Dimitri, is which day is more beneficial for sales? Do people feel like buying a track on Monday or more on Friday? I don't know. Isn't there? Aren't there um, <laughs> holiday-related days for that? The, the, <laughs> Black Monday. The, yeah, you know. there are. You know, um, something we should get to um, in this conversation beyond just angle development is also timelines. Yeah, I, w- I was going to have you mention that because I think that's a, a huge area where artists blow it. I mean, on albums in particular, a lot of independent artists will call a publicist and say, I just released my album and now I want to do PR. And there's two fl- flaws in that statement. One is, what do you mean you just released your album? Your album isn't, I mean, a release in the traditional music marketplace is because you want stores to take orders and so you give them a release date so that they're all taking orders around the same time so they can all have the album in a store on a certain date. When you receive the records in the mail from your manufacturer is not your release date. (laughs) That's your manufacturing date. And the reason that's important is because you actually need a runway to do PR and marketing you actually need to have some ideas in place of what activities you're going to do to make that release date have as much... The, the whole point of a release date is to build impact to one moment in time so that you get momentum from multiple activities and um, different forces in the marketplace and with your fan base and so forth. You can do pre-release stuff. Even if you've manufactured the CD today and you're going on tour tomorrow and you want to sell that new album or your first album on tour, that's okay. Um, those are pre-release sales. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's because they were cool enough to come to your concert. Those, and you tell them that. That gives them a reason to buy at yeah. your concert. You can be the first person to purchase this record because you came to my concert tonight. But you really need, especially with press, but also with other marketing, and, and even just having a plan for how you're going to unroll a release to your fan base, even if you're not on a label and you're doing stuff yourself. It's like, well, think about, you know, maybe you should, maybe you should catalog a couple of blog posts that are going to be released on a weekly basis leading up to your release. Um, maybe there's, um, you know, maybe there's some videos that you're going to release two weeks and one week before the release and so forth and sort of get the momentum to build so that when release date hits, you're getting all these sales at once or getting some attention. And you need to do that with press too. We say that you want to start at the very latest developing your pitch eight weeks before your release date and six weeks before it, you want to be calling short lead press. So that's going to be, um, your local newspapers and websites. That's going to be, um, public radio, local radio, college and community radio, that kind of stuff. You want to start pitching them in advance. Now, with radio, they're probably going to play it sooner than your release date if you don't already have a relationship with them and they want to play it. But it's better than, this came out last week. All of a sudden, as soon as you say, this came out last week, it sounds old. Mm -hmm. Um, So... um, Having enough time to plan for your release is is really uh, is really helpful and for for a, from a PR perspective really good. Same thing goes for concerts. You might think that like three nights is plenty of notice for somebody to either plan to come to your concert or write about your concert. It really isn't. I mean, we think of two weeks as your last minute notice. I mean, yes, you can still a week 
a week before a concert, make sure somebody's coming or so forth. But if you haven't heard an answer from them two weeks before, then you're starting too late, really. Yeah. You want to start contacting local press and a tour market six weeks before each concert. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what the the uh, the local like weeklies here they say that they have it all locked in like two weeks out so if you're unless there's like something that just pops up that's a we must print this type scenario two weeks out it's it's that's right you think about the weeklies i mean they've got to they've got to assign stuff get it written get it back get it edited um design it and print it so you really need to leave some time yeah that's especially those type publications because a lot of them aren't using a giant staff of writers a lot of them are just so we're talking about like the time out new york and the la weekly and the san francisco bay guardian and the village voice those are what we're talking about yeah 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 um you said a couple things there that uh, uh i was wanting to ask about when you're planning the whole release say it's six weeks out i start emailing like you said the short term the short run press how often should i email like all right, I'm six weeks out. I got my whole schedule. I send my email, and I sit there and, well, and wonder, did it already go in the trash? <laughs> should I email again, or how often should I follow up? I certainly wouldn't do it more than once a week. Okay. Yeah. Um, tr- uh, traditional publicists, when they get on the phone and they send email, first of all, they already have relationships with journalists for the most part. And unless there's a huge name artist or some really critical new information or news, um, contacting a journalist more often than once a week is just kind of annoying, mm-hmm. you know. Um, StoryAmp is built with an automatic schedule in it. If you put your tour dates into it, it automatically sends emails to relevant press in each tour market six weeks, four weeks, and two weeks before each concert. So we've actually taken an even more conservative perspective on it. They can also still get to all the tour dates that are coming up within the web app of StoryAmp. But that's just to give you a sense of t- what kind of time frame we scheduled for mm-hmm. um, in, a mo- in a slightly more automated uh, uh, format. That's, that's sort of what we go with. What kind of assets should an artist have when they're ready to go, when they're pitching for press? I mean, because the last thing you want to do is have them say, okay, we'd, we're going to run with this. We need these things and you're like oh crap i don't have those things it's not that complicated but it is important i mean you definitely need music recorded music that you can get to the journalist if you really want to be kind of professional about the whole thing you should be have the ability to hand them streams downloads or physical product and actually be able to mail in a timely fashion physical product meaning a cd to journalists some journalists insist upon it um, it just happens to be their personal listening habits. Mm-hmm. I know those of you who have been like in the iTunes generation for ten years or are, are like that sounds stupid, backwards. <laughs> but there are journalists who still require it. Yeah, uh, there are also gen- journalists who will sell your CDs on eBay and and Amazon and and at yard sales and whatever else too. That just that's just part of it, um, unfortunately. Um, although you know you might want to get them a stream track and see how they want the music delivered rather than just doing a huge mailing of 400 CDs, which is the old way of doing things as well. So you need music that they can listen to easily and in the format they prefer. You need high-res photos. Um, Ideally, you want uh, a really nice album artwork as well as um, at least one artist photo, although if you give them a few choices, it's great because uh, a vertical layout versus a horizontal layout will change their ability of whether they can use something. Um, It's cool to have a variety of color in black and white, just depending on what their design needs are at the moment and so forth. Um, And then, you know, the details of the concert or the release, 
it's better to have more details than, than fewer. So, you know, if you have a record label, a distributor, what territory it's being released on, the release date, the suggested retail price, your preferred uh, retail link uh, for an album, um, track listing is also a good thing to have. Um, and actually, if you're going to deliver music in a digital format to make sure that the it's clear what, what the order of the tracks are mm-hmm. as well as what the titles are, um, that, that's really useful. Um, you know, you don't have to have like comprehensive biographical data on every single track. Although if you do, it can engage certain writers more than others. Um, and then, you know, a, a biography of some sort would be great for them to be able to tap into if they, you know, to get the the general overview of of who you are and where you've been and what you've done, that sort of thing too. You've uh, mentioned the the kind of the release, the kind of like a, you know, new album release type show is it always better if the the pitch you're making to the press has some sort of timeliness like the the album release show i mean is there is there uh, i mean a way to approach press to get them to cover your album when it is more than a week old <laughs> when it sounds old you know i mean is there is there yeah, an every angle single one of like a, you know a lot of artists it'll be this you know as an independent artist you know finishing up an album is it can be in a crazy experience so many details I mean you're making all this music you're enjoying it then it comes down to like now I'm in the manufacturing business now I'm in the marketing business and all these things coming together sometimes you know it's it the effort it just isn't there to put towards an album release show or whatever, but later on the album starts gaining momentum. How do you approach them when it's like, it's not a brand new release, but you know yourself in terms of how organized you are, how experienced you are and so forth. And if you are not an organized person, or if this is your first time out, I strongly recommend make the record and then plan the release and just plan on sitting on it for, you know, a couple of months while you sort that out. Um, I know it, it. I know it's uh, sort of anticlimactic from an artistic perspective. You're like, ah, oh, my baby, it's finally here. <laughs> Let's take pictures, Let's you know. Put and, you on the shelf or something. And so months. forth. But I mean, it, you're really kind of shooting yourself in the foot mm-hmm. if you don't either have a plan in place before this is all going to come together or give yourself the runway, give yourself the, the, the speed. Actually, there was an NPR producer, director who. Um, who was in Bloomington, where I live, to learn Mongolian. Uh, <laughs> Wait a minute, back up. You went to Bloomington to learn Mongolian? Yeah, he did, because there aren't that oh. many places where you can learn Mongolian. And, and uh, Indiana, oh, col- Indiana University is yeah. there, and there's actually this whole Central Asian uh, population because the Dalai Lama's brother was there and so forth. There's this, yeah, Bloomington's kind of weird. Like Portland, sort of. I've played the Speedway there before. No, you haven't. Yes, I have. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, (laughs) you're the first person I've met who played this. Who's played this? (laughs) Well, is that Um, newsworthy? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Outside of Bloomington, it is. (laughs) I don't know. I I didn't even know they had bands there. (laughs) Anyway. uh, I was talking about Central Asia for some reason. Oh, this NPR director came to Bloomington to learn Mongolian. He happened to be an amateur pilot. So um, he took me up in a, in a plane. <laughs> but in the process, he told me this story that, uh, well, not the story, the, it's, a, it's a flying phrase, that the uh, runway behind you and the sky above you can't help you. And I didn't know what he was talking about, so he explained it to me. So 
people always think it's better to fly. Like amateurs think it's better to fly close to the ground in case something happens, you're closer to the ground. Well, the truth <laughs> is, as long as you're more than 50 feet above the ground, you actually want to be as far away from the ground as possible. So it's, it's better to fly as high as possible so that you have more time in case something bad happens to find a good place to land. And the same is true with the runway. Um, pilots who are either lazy or just aren't having a, a clear head will land in the middle of the runway. But once again, when you're landing, you want to have as much space between you and the end of the runway as possible in case something comes up. And it's the same. That's how I think of it with a release, an album release. The more runway you have, the better it is to plan for things that come up. You have more opportunities to pitch different angles, try out different things during that six-week period than you would if you said, yeah, my release was yesterday. Yeah, You're kind of already out of time, and you're sort of working backwards at that point. So so th I like that. that uh, yeah. The, the big mistake that we see over and over again, and I'm I'm among the guilty, is having a show on the calendar that's going to be, you know, sounds like it's going to be a good show, whether it be the bill is a good bill or it's a good venue, and and then Record's assuming the record will be done, oh, we'll be done with everything by then, and then just busting in at the last minute to try and get all the pieces together. So um, I'm among the guilty in that, <laughs> and, and we see it happen all the time. You yeah. know, bands I mean, calling up saying calling up disc maker saying, can you get my CDs immediately? The, the album release party's next week. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, uh, no, not unless you want to pay a lot extra money. Yeah, I think that um, the only way to control for that is to say, I'm going to finish the record and then I'm going to plan the release. And that's the only way to control for it. And that, I think, in itself has its own emotional and spiritual pain for musicians. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, if unless you've done it before and you know what to expect, I think that's that's the only guaranteed way to not screw up that lead time component for marketing. So. Is there a certain point where an artist should uh, consider, you know, not pitching for themselves anymore and, and hiring a publicist? I mean, is there some sort of threshold that you normally see with artists that you're working with that you're like, okay, this is, you're at a place where it's worth, you know, the investment into my time to help you out and get you some press, or now you just need to keep plugging away on your own? Well, I mean, I think, you know, obviously the biggest factor in hiring somebody is having the money to do it. Um, and if you don't have the money to do it, it's not an option, really. Um, and in terms of whether you're capable of doing it without having to spend that money, that's really going to vary depending on um, someone's level of interest and just mostly interpersonal skills, a little bit of organizational skills, some computer skills as well. As well, uh, when when artists try to hire me, one of my companies, um, without a release or a tour, they're like, "Well, I know that I just need to raise my via my my sort of visibility." And I'm going to be trying to get a Grammy nomination. And so I just need to raise the, the visibility for me. Um, you know, my response is usually there's not really that many great ways to do that without a release or without a tour. Now, you know, if you have a successful Kickstarter campaign, that could be good. If you have some kind of mission-based, non-profity work, that can be good. Although that's generally harder to get press without a release or a tour to go with. Um, anniversaries really don't get press very excited. <laughs> um, uh, film work, you know, that's a whole different world in terms of getting film-related press. Music press don't cover a ton of film, music-related film, mm -hmm. um, y unless you're already pretty famous or, you know, you have a breakout documentary hit of some sort. Yeah. 
Um, but a lot of that stuff is more driven at the grassroots level than it is at the at the press level. I mean, press don't cover music movies unless they're about somebody famous or there's a groundswell mm -hmm. of people who've just from the film world who've gotten interested in something like that. So, um, so you have to have a reason to hire a publicist. Um, you know, with other types of marketing and promotion and, and social media, there may be other things. Uh, that's not my area of expertise, so I won't <laughs> comment on it. <laughs> um, you know, I definitely think it's worthwhile for any independent artist to try to do publicity themselves, at least to get a feel for what the value is when they hire somebody. Mm -hmm. Like if they're having, if they're struggling to write, a, write their story angles and their press release, then they'll understand why they're paying. They'll understand what they're getting for their money. Yeah. You know? And if somebody does a crappy job, they can say, you know what? I could have done that. So no, this is not, you know, this isn't good enough. We need to keep working on this. Or when they get it to say, I don't have to feel guilty about having spent that, you know, whatever hundred dollars to have somebody write this for me. It was totally worth it because I couldn't have done it on my own. And mm -hmm. it'll bring me to the next level, not only with press, but also with booking or you know, label uh, solicitation or whatever else to have that written those those words and, and so forth. And by the way, that is something you can do. You can hire uh, a publicist or even a journalist to write your biography or your press release for you as well. And that's less expensive than hiring a publicist to work a whole two or three month campaign. So that's also a possibility. And if you hire a journalist, just say, "Hey, you already wrote this. You might as well go ahead and print well, there it." Is, I mean, this. <laughs> This probably won't happen to many people who are listening, but there is also the possibility that um, you hire the journalist that you think is going to cover it, and then they say it's a conflict of interest, so then they can't cover it for you. Ah, interesting. So it just depends on the outlet and the journalist and their ethical relationship. Yeah. So uh, this is a question um, that we were discussing on the DIY Musician blog recently, and it was uh, how you deal with bad press. And uh, we've seen it happen recently with with uh, some artists and, and just in mainstream culture, you see it happening. Something, someone gets a bad review and they get on social oh, yeah. media and they just have a total freak out. And All right, well, there's two types <laughs> of bad press. Yeah. There's a bad review and there's like really bad press that becomes viral about you. I've never been in a situation of the really bad press, you know, like, you know, like if you're a superstar, um, and you know something about your use of substances or your relationships crosses a line that the press starts reporting on. That is a whole. That's crisis management, and that's a whole different thing. Most of our listeners probably won't have to deal with that because you don't have um, paparazzi following you around, watching your every move. I mean, that's part of the problem is that when you you know we're humans, and when somebody's following you around, reporting on your every move, you know they're bound to come across something for a lot of people over time. But uh, the other kind that you're talking about that you guys covered on the blog was you got a bad review and then you decided to take revenge. <laughs> the truth is, I don't remember what outlet was that did that bad review. I, I did see that on your blog. Um, it was one of the it was the local weeklies. Yeah, most people didn't notice the review, so you brought more attention to it by talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, and there is, I mean, I know a lot of people don't believe that expression that. Um, any press is good press. And uh, again, you know, we already had a conversation about the Friday video. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's like, um, but, uh, um, but the truth is you're not going to get, what, what are you going to, what do you have to gain from like going after a journalist or so forth? Especially if you're, if you're an artist that doesn't have a significant following. Um, I think artists that 
that have the most grace in that type of situation and say, okay, I got feedback from one person. It's one opinion. What do I do with that feedback internally and how I address that? Maybe I haven't found the right audience yet, or maybe there was some legitimacy to some of the critique, you know, and to be able to, to make, make yourself a stronger person for it is going to get you the furthest in life and with the press. No, no other journalists are going to come to your rescue because you now criticized one of their kind or anything like that. So, I mean, I think, I don't think it's that common for an artist to, to, to step over that line and basically criticize the critic. Um, it seems, it seems like it's potential for it to happen more and more just because, you know, people have access to, access to, you know, telling their you, story. you see, hear stories <laughs> about people of all levels in society of, uh, tweeting something and then going back and deleting it in the, the tweet, you know, if you really them a lot of bad press because uh, people still saw it. And they, it was one of those things where they should have just taken a deep breath, maybe gone, got a pen and paper and written it on that so they could have got it out of their system and then thrown that piece of paper away. You know, the other thing is, you know, you could post it, post it to your fans and say, I mean, if you if you really have confidence in your music enough yeah. to be criticizing the critics to, to post it to your fans and say, what did you think of this review? We were shocked. Yeah. And then see what happens and let, let the conversation play out. You know, you may get good feedback from your fans about stuff that they did like or didn't like, and that helps you improve. I mean, I think some of the smartest musicians these days are really interested in, 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 in the relationship between creativity, feedback, and iteration. To take, you know, the feedback that they get from the world, whether it's from live performance or the recordings or critics or, or social media fan base, and, you know, adapt what you're what you're doing mm-hmm. not because you have to appease anybody but more because it's part of the creative process yeah. and part of engaging an audience well yeah i mean y- instead of turning it into a, something where you look like an idiot you could turn it into s- sort of a, a rallying point feedback loop kind of way to engage your fans exactly and, yeah yeah we we had that same paper uh, on a review of our one of our albums say kind of put a mark against us because it sounded like we tuned our guitars. <laughs> so it's like you also have to take consideration the source before you get online and make yourself look stupid that, you know what? No. Somebody criticized yeah. for tuning your guitars? Yeah. Oh. Like, hmm. Yeah. You know, this is Portland, Dimitri. <laughs> we don't do that. We don't have, our band no doesn't have beards guitar? either. So, <laughs> I mean, that's two strikes against oh, us. <laughs> Gotcha. So now you're gonna get me all worked up, and I'm gonna go start <laughs> posting stuff on Twitter. Why don't you ask your fans what they think, Kevin? <laughs> right. Um, is there a certain etiquette with social media as far as like reaching out to press, like trying to be too friendly, like on Twitter, following them and start harassing them? I mean, is there? Have you heard stories of people crossing the line there, or actually, you know, a press person? Kind of liking people, just kind of hey, I'm check this out on. You know, I think Twitter. it really varies from journalist to journalist, and the best way to know is to sort of observe some observe a journalist's newsfeed or Twitter feed and see sort of what kinds of interactions are happening there and what they respond well to and that sort of thing. I mean, that it is kind of interesting that earlier in a, about two years ago, um, fa- it was a no no to pitch journalists on Facebook. But Twitter has always been a little less so. But again, you have to do it with kind of gracefully. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. yo, homie, check out my new video with a link. <laughs> <in>. It's like, <laughs> hey, if we deleted those from uh, 
the CD Baby Twitter feed, the people sending us those, <laughs> the half the stuff would be gone. <laughs> You're in a different business than journalists, though. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I mean, you know, that other than, hey, would love to lo- love to see what you think of my video is a different thing than, than just sort of like putting it in people's face yeah. um, and so forth. But again, I would I would check people's feeds. Don't just start blast. Don't get like some journalist Twitter handle list and just start cut, paste, cut, paste, cut, paste, cut, paste. Because they can all see that. That's all yeah. searchable on Twitter. Yeah. So And please don't have hundreds of your fans hit them up on Twitter as well. well. That <laughs> yeah, that's true too. <laughs> Although, although if you have a fan who has a, a, an actual legitimate, authentic yes, friendship or relationship, they, they can engage in that conversation. Well, um, it's been fun talking with you. Likewise, yeah, man. It's been it's good energy. It's nice having <laughs> someone in the room with me instead of staring at the walls while I'm talking to somebody. Well, you know, I just and imagined that you were staring at the wall while we talked. Yeah, so. okay, that's true. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, before we wrap up, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Story Amp? Okay. Yeah. So as I mentioned, um, you can put your releases or your tour info into StoryAmp and it automatically sends out the concert or recording information to relevant press um, three times before the release date or the concert. It also has a press kit function. So you basically, if you're not, if you don't have a good place to host your photos, videos, audio, biography, press release, links, all that kind of stuff, we have a really clean, beautiful format um, where you can do that for free. Um, we have a free version of the account, and then you can upgrade to various premium levels as well, where you get what we call fancy listings emailed. Fancy it to, listings. Yeah, and all I mean, basically, the idea is that you can get your music into the email inboxes of relevant journalists mm-hmm. um, through StoryAmp. It's a buffered experience for the journalists, so they don't feel like you're stalking their inbox or that you're spamming them with stuff. And so we force you into a particular format so they're getting a digest maximum of one email a day with everything that's relevant to their genres of interest or cities of interest. So we try to unify the format, make it relevant, let the journalists control the relevancy by genre and concert city. And then if they're interested, they can get in touch with you. They can download your music. They can request interview or physical product. And you have a real-time activity log as an artist to see um, to see which media outlets are engaging with which of your concerts or releases and stuff. Well, cool. And that's just storyamp.com. That's right. All right. Yeah, check it out. Uh, and you should also check out the, the guide that we did, the Story Amp guide. I forget the name Amplify of it. Amplify Your Story. Yeah. No, it had... PR publicity hacks. Is oh yeah, we did we did two. Yeah, and one of them was one of them uh, still on our website. So ten, we'll, we'll ten, put a, ten publicity hacks. There we go. Yeah. That's what it is. We'll we'll put a link to uh, whichever one we still have live <laughs> on our site so people can check it out. And it's free. It's free. Yes, yeah, free information. So well, thank you very much, and we'll have to have you back on the podcast uh, to talk about uh, world music. Yeah, the state or, of world music. It's that's yeah. also constantly yeah shipping. yeah it's we. We have artists in those genres that listen to the podcast, but we I don't know that we've ever really catered to them with uh, an episode about that. Whole yeah, we've had some great CD Baby success stories for at Rock Paper Scissors. Yes, that's, so. that's one of the coolest things that I've uh, enjoyed being at CD Baby is to see some of those storylines that just will not play in the mainstream market as far as like no major label is going to go pick up this artist, but it's still great music and and worthy of an outlet and voice. So, And if you want to just check out those the, the world music scene, uh, rockpaperscissors.biz is the music PR firm that I run. And then uh, dubmc.com is my blog. We post kind of music industry-related information for world music artists and promoters and labels and stuff like that. So Excellent. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Thanks. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the podcast. Thanks again to Dimitri for... Uh, 
hanging out here in Portland with us. It was nice to actually have somebody in the studio with me as opposed to over Skype or the phone. If you have a question or a comment about press or anything else that you'd like to weigh in with, feel free to call our listener line at 360-524-2209 or email us at podcast at cdbabypodcast.com. Well, that's it. We'll catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to the CD Baby DIY Musician Podcast, broadcasting from Portland, Oregon, USA. 